Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to uh, take on a subject today that uh, we here on Political Rewind, our, our producing staff and I have talked about for a long time. It, it, I think it is uh, impossible to underestimate just how important redistricting is as a function of the people's right to vote in the way that they choose to uh, and in a way that uh, uh, lays out uh, exactly the people who are going to be in power and those who are going to be, to some extent, maybe disenfranchised is too strong a word, but certainly not going to have the representation that they uh, believe they should have. And redistricting, gerrymandering, uh, as it's called when you think about it in uh, the most, I think, negative terms. And so we're going to talk about it, unpack it today with a great panel. Jim Galloway, of course, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm glad you're here for this show, Jim. You and I have lived through many redistrictings in the Georgia General Assembly over the years. I can't remember if I lived through the 1982 redistricting or 81 redistricting, but I know that I've been through everyone since. And one of the people we watched uh, through much of that during his time first in the Georgia General Assembly uh, before he moved on for about a decade or so in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, Lynn Westmoreland, now retired from uh, elective office. Lynn, it's, we, we're glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you all. You're sitting next to, if you're watching on Facebook Live, you'll see Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor from Emory University. Uh, you are one of the great data crunchers that we know. So I'll be interested in hearing some of your thoughts about how um, redistricting the data that goes into the way in which we crunch numbers around redistricting, Andra. And joining us from the studios of WUNC in Durham, North Carolina, Kareem Creighton, uh, the executive director of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. Kareem, I was reading your biography and um, I see it, it. There's an interesting line. You are the only academic in the United States with formal training in law and political science whose primary work explores the relationship between rep race and politics in representative institutions. What that means is you're perfectly suited to talk about redistricting and gerrymandering. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get started. Let me, Jim Galloway, let me just start with you. I, what, tell us what is, at its most basic level, redistricting is a function that must be conducted certainly every it, 10 years. Right. It's a constitutionally, U.S. constitutionally required process that follows the census, which, of course, is, is, is happening in 2020. Okay. But the word gerrymandering is not necessarily synonymous with no, redistricting. But it, no, but it is almost as old as the Constitution. Yes, exactly. So, so it's it's been a continuing issue, and that is, is uh, the Constitution mandates a proportionate allocation of the population uh, by by U.S. House districts. All right, uh, who is placed into those districts is is the is 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 the subject of uh, 250 years of debate. Yeah, or so. Uh, uh, we had a, the early early Constitution, of course. You you had the you had the three fifths clause, 
which uh, which which counted uh, uh, Af- African Americans in 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 bondage as three fifths of the person uh, for to uh, to to uh, to boost the Southern count, uh, and right now, I mean, this is basically it's 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 an opportunity at best for for for. Uh, uh, to to qualify for what the Supreme Court has has mandated in in terms of one one person one vote, at worst it is a chance for for politicians in power to choose the voters who will be electing them the next time. Yeah, um, we should also point out very quickly, uh, Andre Gillespie, that um, while right now it, it it because Republicans had such great success in elections across the United States in 2010 elections. Uh, the last time that, that, you know, from the last census, right now we tend to see gerrymandering working in the favor of Republicans. But it has been a, a bipartisan uh, uh, weapon used for many years. And in fact, we can go back to Roy Barnes' governorship in Georgia in 2000 when he I ruled with an iron fist in terms of creating districts that favored Democrats overwhelmingly against Republicans. So it's used by both parties. Yeah, I mean, this is a story of uh, to the victor goes the spoils. Um, And, you know, the issue is, is that since pretty much the founding of the republic, whichever party was in power tried to game the district drawing system to the point that it would actually maximize uh, maximize their representation in Congress. Um, Even if that means you split up neighborhoods, even if you split up geographic communities where it may make sense if it's possible, it's not always possible for them to have the same representative. Um, And so we just have to ask ourselves whether or not that's appropriate and fair. And what we've seen happen is that the courts have largely stayed out of that when it's for partisan reasons. You know, they've weighed in for racial reasons, um, but should they weigh in for other types of things? And if they won't weigh in, will um, legislatures weigh in? Will you see moves to nonpartisan um, types of drawings where people um, are not necessarily trying to game uh, the system to make sure that their party gets as many seats as possible? Um, Kareem, we should point out that because uh, the next census takes place uh, in 2020, uh, it makes the 2020 elections in legislative races around the country even more important because the parties that dominate, certainly a leg- legislature like that in Georgia, up in North Carolina, where you are, uh, t- terribly important because the party in its dominant control of the legislature will be able to determine how seats are apportioned and uh, make sure that they favor their own party, Right. I think that's right. And in fact, you all mentioned earlier that uh, Republicans now kind of rule the roost in this neck of the woods in the South. And in part, it's because they figured that out after 2008 that they lost the White House and frankly, both houses of Congress. They figured out exactly what they needed to do at the state legislative level. And in a state like North Carolina, where there actually is no governor's role in redistricting, the job uh, that every Body recognized that needed to be done was to capture both houses of the state legislature. You do that, you have complete control of the process. And no matter how many Democrats or Republicans you have in Congress, uh, that's totally up to uh, either the legislature as it is in North Carolina or the legislature and the governor. And if you have a very good year and a midterm race right after redistricting, the opportunity that you have, as uh, Professor Gillespie said, to get all of the spoils is right in front of you. Um, we're going to talk in a few minutes about the fact that uh, North Carolina, of course, played a major role in, uh, in an important Supreme Court case that was decided over the summer 
that in many ways, and I don't want to jump on this conversation quite yet, but really close the door for uh, court cases that would uh, uh, decide whether partisan gerrymandering was legal or illegal. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But Lynn Westmoreland, uh, you served in the legislature at a time when it was controlled by the Democrats. You know full well what happened in when Governor Barnes was in power and his chief of staff, Bobby Kahn, was literally, I mean, almost literally cracking the whip to make sure that they drew districts that favored Democrats by um, by large numbers. They created multi-member districts to help aid that process. And there are people who believe that, although the flag played a role, that it was the way in which they behaved on redistricting that did have an impact on the fact that Barnes lost re-election. I think it did. You know, if you go down to Johnson County, um, I think it's got a population of like 9,000 people. It had two state senators and four representatives because (laughs) it was so split up and they were used to having one state senator and one rep. Uh, But, you know, I handled uh, the national redistricting at the NRCC. And we identified 16 legislatures that liked maybe four or five people from flipping one body. And so at the time, Republicans controlled about 88 seats. What what year was that? That was in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so 88 seats is what the Republicans had, and that meant they had the governor or the legislative. And we actually flipped 20 uh, bodies and ended up with 200 and controlling 212 of those. And so that was what we did. And we snuck up on the Democrats. I mean, I don't think we were we were playing under the radar and going after these legislative seats. And now I tell you, Eric Holder and uh, former President Obama and others are doing a great job. They're not they're they're going after some of these legislative districts, but they're going after the judges now. And if you ask Kareem in North Carolina, you know, uh, you're elected those Supreme Court justices that threw a lot of these maps uh, out. Yes. Uh, Let me point out that when you talk about Eric Holder and uh, former President Obama, they created together a national democratic organization to try to undo what they see as the damage that Republicans have done in building uh, districts that favored them broadly. And they've targeted 12 states. Georgia happens to be one of those 12. But go ahead, Kareem, and respond to what Lynn Westmoreland said. Well, uh, it's worth pointing out that long before uh, the Holder and Obama group began, there were a number of groups out there, including my own, that um, have been actually working on this from a nonpartisan perspective um, because it's actually not just a matter of the fight that happens between people with Ds and Rs behind their names, but the fact that voters, in particular voters of color who have been excluded from the process, as you all have suggested from the start of the republic, that we still haven't gotten to a space where people of color in the South in particular uh, have a fair shake in determining how districts get drawn. It is certainly true that um, judges now are recognized, I think, frankly, as they always have been at the state level, as playing a significant role in driving uh, outcomes for state policies. And as redistricting now gets shifted more to state uh, constitutions and state statutes for uh, determining what structures make sense, state court judges are going to make a huge difference. And um, I think, frankly, a lot more uh, attention has been put into local and statewide races, recognizing that truth. And I don't know that that 
that's necessarily a bad thing uh, as we think about the way in which we want to have decisions made closer to home. I suspect the Republicans on the panel will agree about the benefit of having local control over decisions like this. Well, sure. But, you know, if you look at Illinois, Illinois, we lost three Republican seats in Illinois after Illinois redistricted. Uh, they gerrymandered it because they were in the majority. You know, the Democrats. Jerry, yeah, gerrymander is only the word that the minority uses <laughs> when you're talking about redistricting. But we lost three seats. And, um, you know, that was the spoils. I mean, you know, they got it and they did it and we accepted it. Uh, unfortunately, um, some of the other states, and you will never— and, Bill, this is the thing that I guess people try to do with these uh, uh, committees or these boards or redistricting commissions, whatever you want to call them. You'll never take the politics out of reapportionment. It, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a political blood sport. And, I mean, I've seen grown men and women cry, you know, looking at these maps and say they're drawing me out of my district. Right, if you, but, but go ahead. Let me finish point your out one thing. When Roy Barnes drew those multi-member districts, Kareem was talking about the black uh, uh, minorities not being involved in the process. He was taking those multi-member districts and putting enough minorities in them to elect white Democrats. And we pointed that out during the debates on the floor. And we think that that was one of the things that actually hurt the governor. And not only that, you know, he, he was doing everything he could to keep Democrats in control. It didn't matter if you were white or black or whatever. He was doing whatever it took to keep Democrats in control because his argument was, regardless of whether a black wins the seat or a white Democrat wins the seat, it's best for the party. The, the, the party. All right. So let me back up just and let's frame this uh, in, in, in a way that I'd like to get everybody to weigh in on. Andra, the, the, the United States Supreme Court has ruled— that racial gerrymandering is illegal. Mm -hmm. What's the basis for that? In other words, what do they mean by that, that racial gerrymandering is illegal? Um, so I'm Kareem, law professor. If I say something wrong, please correct me. Um, but the, the, the basic idea of this is that when it comes to issues related to race, even when the remedy is uh, suspected to be benign or beneficial, that it is automatically suspect because of our history of racial discrimination and slavery. Um, in the United States. And so it has to meet the standard of strict scrutiny. So it has to be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling state interest. And um, what the Supreme Court ruled, this wasn't initially the case, but by the time we get to the mid-1990s in Shaw versus Reno, um, the Supreme Court rules that drawing districts specifically for African-Americans and drawing really weird districts, so hence the name of the gerrymander, so the original salamander-shaped district in Massachusetts. You look at sort of the districts in North Carolina that were like, you know, barbell districts that are connected yeah. by I-85, right, to connect two sort of, you know, not geographically contiguous black, uh, black communities together so that you get an African-American district. Sandra Day O'Connor's writing uh, the opinions in these cases, and she's like, that's too much. Right. So, you know, nobody's going to pay attention to sort of the, the Democratic sort of side of this, but to do this on purely racial reasons, given America's history 
of racial discrimination is suspect. I mean, and it also relates to the scholarship that was actually coming out at about that time that pointed out that when you create these districts that are overwhelmingly African-American, so, you know, 70, 80 percent African-American, where you're going to guarantee that an African-American is going to be elected in those districts, or at the very least that black voters are going to be the ones deciding what's going on, um, that um, that this actually ends up having the impact of perhaps uh, lowering the opportunities of having somebody who would be, uh, vote in the interest of African-Americans in adjacent districts. There was a th- and yes. so, yeah, so, so there's all of this stuff going on there, but because of sort of that notion of strict scrutiny, the Supreme Court intervened and said you can't do that anymore. But just because you can't do that anymore doesn't mean that you can't pile, you know, 100% of Democrats into one district and then sort of like make the surrounding districts less competitive yeah, I, electorally. I'm sorry, Kareem, yeah, I thought Andra made that point well. You know, you, uh, you, you can't uh, use racial gerrymandering to concentrate the power of African-Americans or whites for that matter in, in such a way that you dilute their, the ability for them to have an impact on other districts in a given state, right? Am I got that correct, basically? I think the doctrine in theory is absolutely right. The challenge is that we live in a space, particularly in the southern part of the United States, where there is almost no other group out there that you can name that at present serves as a proxy for Democratic voters than Mm African-Americans. And so while you can say in theory that partisan gerrymandering usually won't be regulated and racial gerrymandering will, as uh, Professor Gillespie rightly said, um, I'll call it Andrew, but the... um, challenge is when in practice you're telling the legislature, all right, how do you do that in practice when you know if you're going to look for Democrats, and there are a couple of cases that talk about the complexity with here, that sometimes you're going to find that you're going to think about African Americans, not because they're African Americans, but because they vote Democrat. And the challenge throughout all of this, to be clear about, I think uh, Congressman Westmoreland is right, uh, Democrats did it some in the 90s. Republicans did a lot this um, decade. But what's missing in both of these narratives is, again, a space where people themselves get a chance to have a role in saying what kinds of districts make sense to them that reflect things like where they see community, whom they see as allies and neighbors. And when that's missing, you get into this, I think, parlor game. You know, the point was about not being able to take politics out of apportionment, I'd like to think about ways of making sure that people are in the process, Jim, not necessarily and, excluded. Right. And, and, and what you have to remember is because it's a political process, you are de- de- dealing with individuals who have their own ambitions. And this is where I'd like to kind of uh, uh, draw Lynn into the conversation because basically the history of redistricting in Georgia, pretty much I think from the 90s on, has uh, from the 90s at least until 20 2002 or maybe or, or or maybe maybe 2012 so Purdue, well or you're going to go much later than Sonny Perdue is, okay. is is that republicans republicans were able to they were a minority in the in the state leg, in the Georgia state legislature for so long but they formed this alliance with african american democrats in the state capitol because the tension within the Democratic Party was that, yes, uh, 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 black voters were supplying the votes, but it was white representatives who were, who were, who were being elected. And, and you had this movement uh, – uh, was, was it the Max Black movement or the Black Max movement? Yeah, uh, one, one of those, yeah, one of those yeah. two, where you had you had people like Cynthia McKinney uh, 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 in DeKalb County, Robert Brown in Macon, uh, d- making all these efforts to make sure that that uh, 
you you had some African-American members of Congress from Georgia other than John Lewis. Mm -hmm. Lynn Westmoreland, you have been very uh, candid in talking about how you, when you were in charge of this process in the legislature, uh, talked with uh, some of the African-American members Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, kind of pulled them aside. You you told a group of Republicans at one point not long ago, uh, and I think Slate Magazine got a hold of some tapes of you, in which you said you went off campus, as you described it, left the Capitol to encourage some of the African-Americans in the, in the legislature to work with you so that you could help them build districts that would guarantee an African-American would be listed, uh, uh, elected. But you have said, and that gave us the chance to build white districts that would go Republican around them. That's kind of true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what we did was we went off campus and set up a redistricting office, and Brian Tyson uh, was there and, and drawing maps. Tell everybody so who Brian Tyson is. Brian Tyson is now an attorney, uh, was head of the public defenders. He came to work for me when he was about 20 years old, one of the brightest Self-taught law- lawyer. Yes. And But what we did is we set this up because a lot of the Democrats that we were talking to, black and white, were saying— Speaker Murphy said, we can't have our district like that. And so we said, well, come on over to our office and we'll see if we can have your district like that. And so they were very hesitant at first, but then they started to come over. And I could tell you tales, one Ben Allen over in Augusta won a certain Senate district, I mean, a certain congressional district that he could run in. And so Ben and I had lunch one day and I said, well, Ben, I'd like to see the map because I may want to make some tweaks. And he said, no tweaks, it's up or down. I said, hey, we're William. And so I went back to the conference and told him we passed it. The next day, Murphy came back, and Ben and and the the, uh, blacks caved, and Murphy got the map he wanted. But Barnes, in that particular session, Barnes, it had to be a 55% Democratic voting district. And uh, that was a big mistake because— when you get 55% Democratic voting districts and you don't know the, the makeup of it, it's a problem. All right. So but, I want to go ahead and finish but that. But anyway, I was going to say, in this last congressional redistricting, I did go to Sanford Bishop and and David Scott. And I said, hey, look, you know, y'all, y'all draw your map and, and we'll work around you. And, and we were able to do it. And John, I mean, you know, they all— I mean, I'm assuming the only one that didn't get a shot was Barrow, which, <laughs> you know, but we that's the way the maps right. are drawn. So, um, Kareem, I want to make a larger point about what, what uh, Westmoreland just said, Lynn Westmoreland just said. The Supreme Court says that racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional. But as we well know, in two very important cases argued uh, uh, before them last year and, and with the decisions coming out this past summer, they said— uh, they do not want to weigh in on partisan gerrymandering. They want to stay away from politics. That's up to people like uh, Lynn Westmoreland and others to make those decisions. But I think Lynn Westmoreland, Kareem, just pointed out how in how really impossible it is to somehow separate racial gerrymandering from partisan gerrymandering, right? Well, uh, a couple of points there. So – one of the cases that was heard last year was our case, actually, yeah. Women Voters in North Carolina mm-hmm. versus Rucho. And what the court gave us was, I think, something that most of us didn't expect, uh, which was essentially a decision that turned its back on about four decades of jurisprudence. 
what they said was that the federal courts weren't going to be a place where you could litigate these sorts of questions, but that state courts were free to do what they will. Yes. And, you know, again, the sort of consistency with doctrine aside, it doesn't necessarily close the door to examining this question. It changes the venue where that can be or technically the forum where it can be um, discussed. There is indeed a complication, though, about essentially leaving to a different standard the question about partisanship and that of racial equity. Um, but what what disturbs me throughout all of this, again, uh, Congressman Westmoreland told a story that I've heard either as a consultant or uh, a scholar looking at stories around the country. Uh, and the story is the same, that people get in a room and talk about the districts that they want. And it is really on its head when you're talking about a system that's supposed to be driven by public decisions and not uh, the actors who actually are the people who are supposed to be serving the public's uh, concerns. So I think if you're trying to get at the question of, well, should party or race define what a community looks like that should be respected in a district, I would be a uh, supporter of the radical idea that maybe you should talk to the community yeah. and not the people <laughs> who happen to be well, the in immediate beneficiaries of it, because they're always going to, I think that's right. Everybody's going to want to have a district that serves them. Kareem, and it oh, may go ahead, run you may I run ask, against the interests of the community. Let me let me just point one quick thing out, and then I know Lynn wants to jump back in. Um, you had exactly what you talked about a moment ago happen. The Supreme Court took your case, the, the North Carolina case, which was uh, brought by Democrats, and the Maryland case brought by Republicans, and said we don't want to get involved by a five to four decision, but did say state courts can get involved, and that's exactly what happened. With your state in North Carolina, state courts did look at the districts that were drawn and say the map's no good. So, so it, they the courts can still get involved. Is the point? Can I ask Kareem a question? Just <clears throat> Kareem, you know, right now, if you go to the Justice Department and ask them what percentage of voters of minority voters make a influence district. In what percentage of minority voters make a majority minority district? Because in, under the Voting Rights Act, we are required to have, I think Georgia has to have at least two majority minority districts. But there's never been a number set for what that is. And there's not a number set for an influence district. So how do you determine that? That's been one of the the questions that I've always tried to find an answer to from the Justice Department is, okay, well, g give me some kind of idea. But it, it all depends on the state. It all depends on the district. And Kareem? Sure. Well, part of the answer is, I think, where you ended, which is um, all of these are context-specific um, choices. The courts sometimes give us rules that look like hard numbers. Uh, some might, perhaps people, uh, you might uh, agree with. Some people, you know, call them quotas, which usually the court rejects. And in fact, because of that, the court turns to uh, really locally driven assessments of what numbers make sense given the uh, context. So, for example, there are places where African Americans and white voters and voters in color generally um, tend to cooperate. 
where you don't need these extra, uh, let's say, heavy regulations in driving what those numbers need to look like. You can rely on voters to make those decisions themselves. But if you have a case, as in the state I grew up in, Alabama, Georgia certainly has places like this, uh, where, uh, you know, blacks vote typically for one set of candidates that whites tend not to vote for. That's exactly the place where, given our history, we want to have some sort of assurance that race isn't solely driving political outcomes. Because if it does, then that always means that the minority group is going to be out. And that's the place where the Constitution gets really, I think, uh, engaged, and rightly so, to prevent that from forever and always defining how politics gets played out in in public. Okay, I've got to get a break in. I'm running a little late on that. We'll take just a moment uh, uh, for these messages and come right back. We're going to talk some, you know, there's some real world consequences. This isn't just a legal argument, and we'll talk about that and a lot more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to this special edition of Political Rewind. We're talking about gerrymandering uh, right now with uh, Jim Galloway of the AJC, Dr. Andre Gillespie of Emory University, former congressman and state Georgia State Representative Lynn Westmoreland, and joining us from the studios of WUNC in Durham, Kareem Creighton, who is the executive director of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. So, Andra, right before the break, I said, you know, this all sounds like a legalistic argument in some ways, but there are some very real world consequences to as to what happens when you pack a district so that, you know, uh, Republicans dominate or Democrats dominate. To some extent, this is why we can't have uh, really deliberative discussions in Washington anymore. The gridlock is because you are safe in your district and the partisanship just continues to grow. There's a lot to unpack there. So I kind of want to go okay. back to Congressman Westmoreland's question. Um, the numbers that I'm going to give you are old. But political scientists did actually try to quantify sort of like what would constitute a minority influence district in the mid-90s. And so, you know, we'd expect that those numbers change. But one of the things that they noted at the time was that they would be regionally differentiated. And so you would need fewer blacks in a district in, you know, in the north than you would in the south. So the numbers that they used were 27 percent and 45 percent. If I recall from like the Northwest Austin Utility versus Holder case, like the numbers that got thrown out, one of the dissents, I believe, were different. But, you know, it's somewhere sort of around there. And we would just have to adjust those numbers to look at what racial polarization and partisan polarization look like in voting today. Um, But in terms of thinking about this idea of, you know, what are the real world consequences of this? One, I think it's a real world consequence um, if our deliberative bodies, if our legislatures don't accurately reflect the overall representation of the electorate. And so if we see certain practices in place that are preventing minorities or people of color uh, from being able to be represented, then that actually delegitimizes the institution. Like if we were to look at Congress today um, and it was all white men, that clearly is not America. And so that would suggest that in some ways, even if people were able to cast ballots, that there's some level of disenfranchisement going on there, which is what I think Kareem is talking about. Um, But when I think about sort of this question of polarization and does gerrymandering cause polarization, there's a robust debate about these things. Um, I was just in a talk yesterday where Alan Abramowitz was talking about this. And so uh, it depends on which data you look at. So stuff that came out 10 to 15 years ago would say gerrymandering does not cause polarization. Um, There is newer data, which I think Kareem can speak to better than I can, which would suggest that we might need to revisit that question, even if we do attribute part of our partisan polarization to 
um, gerrymandering, I would argue it doesn't actually explain everything. Um, you, we could have these partisan districts, um, and one of the reasons why um, you would still have polarization is that Americans themselves have actually sorted themselves ideologically in ways that they didn't a generation or two ago. So you just have fewer moderate Republicans, fewer conservative Democrats. And so because we don't have that kind of intermixing of people who really think that they have stuff in common or really could be six of one and half a dozen of the other, we would still probably have fights. But that doesn't negate the normative question that I think Kareem is raising. Why can't the people decide what their communities are and whether or not they want their community split or cracked. And in particular, is it ethical for you to let the fox in the hen house, basically, by letting legislators draw their own district <laughs> yeah. lines? You know, Hunter makes a great point, uh, Jim. I, you know, I think about this in the most reductive way. If your district is all Trump supporters, you have no reason to listen to Democratic arguments because your voters are going to be with you. But as she points out, just geographically, we've sorted ourselves. You can't draw Democratic districts in South Georgia or mixed districts in South Georgia anymore because the, the, the voters there are primarily going to be Republican and vote Republican. Right, and there right? are fewer and fewer <laughs> of them, so those districts are going to get larger and larger and larger, and the diversity goes uh, moves north into, into North Georgia. One, one thing I'd like to <clears throat> just kind of, pre- since we've got three really good experts here, we are approaching a, 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 a line in Georgia, and I, I assume in North Carolina too, where you, where you live, Kareem, in, in, in that there is a de- demographic shift coming up, all right? Georgia is not going to be a majority white state anymore uh, by what? Uh, at least by 2035, okay? Maybe probably sooner. Uh, I don't know what the numbers are in, in, in North Carolina. It, makes, it means that we're going to have more fights and more intense fights over redistricting in the next few years. Not, it's, it's not going to get easier. And one of the big questions has always been trying to separate motive. You know, you were you talk you you say we're doing this by polit we're we're going to it's it's okay to separate uh, districts and people by polit political uh, 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 votes, uh, but not by race. But as we all have already said here in the South, those two are almost identical. So the biggest to me the biggest news in redistricting happened. Uh, kind of well. It actually, it happened in 2018. It came came of age uh, this year in 2019, and that was the death of Thomas Hoffeller. Uh, he is he was the he was the kind of the 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 Michelangelo yeah, of, the mastermind. Of, of 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 Republican line drawing. Uh, and and what he died, he left a cache of of uh, electronic files, which became uh, very big, I think, in, 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 your, in your lawsuits, Kareem, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I guess what just to the group is, what's the legacy of that? Kareem? Uh, we'll find out some part of the legacy soon as we actually just uh, filed a motion to compel in one of our cases to get more information on uh, the Hoffler files. I think that is right. Thinking about intent is you know, in many of these cases, a crucial part of the claim. But it's also important to remember, you know, the case that we just brought followed a case that we won on racial gerrymandering. But the point of it is it's the same legislature that drew both of these maps. And unfortunately, I think our Supreme Court didn't uh, carry through what I think is the obvious inference that when one door closes, a legislature that is prevented from pursuing a 9-3 map one way, is going to try to uh, preserve that 
that benefit that they get from a nine three or an eight three map another way. This is, and this so, is how many how many members of Congress are, are Republican and Democrat that you said. Thank you. It was precisely so. And that's true again for any legislature that wants to seek its will. But I guess I wanted to mention one other thing about the point about the public. Um, you know, there's so many different ways in which this actually has effect on the very thing that I think we all I hope we all want to agree to, which is the proposition that if you are a registered voter, you should be able to get access to choose who represents you without encumbrance or confusion. And it's the very act of gerrymandering in a lot of these existing communities where the lines that are drawn in arbitrary and many times confusing ways uh, impedes that ability. So if you think about it from the perspective of a voter, you live on a campus like in Greensboro, North Carolina, North Carolina A&T largest historically black college in the country, was split in three different districts. And people mm-hmm. who used to vote in one precinct all of a sudden had no right. clue about which precinct they they would go to. That disincentivizes your ability to go vote. It confuses you because you don't know whether you can campaign with your neighbor or that you have to go down the street to find people who you want to convince to vote for someone. And frankly, it becomes costly for people who do actually do campaigning. But more than that, if you want to have something done for what you know your community to be – Right. A city or in this case, a campus. How do you get an elected official to take responsibility for that? And I think no matter whether you're Democrat or Republican, that's got to be concerning. And it troubles me that the gerrymandering conversation misses the effect on people as it plays out one way or the other. Well, Kareem, one of the things is that I think that uh, communities of interest should always be kept together. But that can work the other way, too. I mean, you know, it it can really cause, uh, you know, if you take a predominantly black college like you're talking about, is it better for them to be in three districts or to be in one and looked at as being packed? In terms of the ability of the people in those districts to have an influence on how the politics of the state will play out, which is better? Yeah, which is better? Is it better to have three representatives uh, or uh, the the one, you know, the the one that's concise because then you could get into well they packed they packed all those uh, you know uh, folks young people into one district and rather than having them in three different districts where they could have much more influence on these other two districts than they could in just the yeah, one. Yeah, but Andrew, that's that's fine to say from a 50,000-foot level, but the the legislators who drew, drew them into three districts knew what they were doing. They understood the data and how it was going to play out. And that you're also looking <laughs> with a young, inexperienced electorate who, if they because they don't know already, are already predisposed to not turn out to vote, um, and then you've just made it that much harder for them. And, I mean, no offense, it actually increases the work of the people in, in their government affairs office because now they've got multiple people to deal with, and they probably could have already dealt with those people in terms of county delegations and other types of things. But I also think that in terms of thinking about trying to keep communities together, um, you know, okay, A&T is a big community, um, but, you know, do you need to split it into multiple districts? Like the college campuses are usually not that big. Um, and so when they are, are, are relatively small, it might make more sense to kind of keep everybody together than to try to divide them. And, and it's also like practical stuff because you are dealing with 18 to 22 year olds and, you know, maybe a little bit older um, kids move across campus. I'm for it. All the time from here. No, but just trying to keep track of who, like where you live. Like this actually occurred to me in college where my university kind of straddled a city and a county. 
because I'm from Virginia and you know, county and cities are separate. And it was my first year. Well, it didn't matter. I didn't have a car, but my second year I had to pay my property taxes one place. And then by the time I got to my last year, my property taxes were due someplace else. Right. To ask a 22 year old to kind of be responsible for that kind of stuff. Right. Imagine like like that's that, that, like that's impractical. And if you don't have to do it, then you shouldn't. Yeah, do it. Let me let me uh, uh, Jim, let me talk about two developments. I start with you um, that have had a I think it's fair to say a pretty profound impact on redistricting and the ability to, to uh, draw lines that really fit you, you want for your own party. Uh, one of them happened a number of years ago, another is much more recent. And the one that happened a long time ago was computerized map drawing. Yes. You and I remember a day, and so does Lynn Westmoreland, when you'd visit the reapportionment office at the state capitol, and they would be sitting there with ledgers, with pens and paper, with, with actual huge, physical huge, maps. Huge physical maps and, on the wall. And every time a legislator like Westmoreland would walk in and say, no, 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 I need 10,000 fewer Democrats, you would have to, it was an arduous process to try to find a, a map that worked for him. Computers, push a button, you've got a new map. And and it has become so much easier to draw a politician out of his or her Absolutely. particular district yeah. because you can you can you you can pinpoint uh, the residents and then you can draw a line all the way around it. Oh. it I, I would challenge to, to, to and, and this kind of it kind of dovetails with what Andre was saying. I would challenge you. Okay, the, uh, Georgia has 14 congressional districts. All right, I would challenge anybody in the 13th congressional district. This is David Scott's district. It is a, it is a a, a hobgoblin yeah. of of that kind of hugs uh, interstates and 285 and I-75. I would I would challenge anybody to to tell me what congressional district they're actually in. All right, I'm being I'm being uh, the the guys in the control room. You know, Faust, Sarah Callis, our intern, who, by the way, produced this show today. Good work, uh, Sarah Earl, saying break, break, break. So let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show, and we'll be back with more in just a minute. By the way, if you want to talk about the impact that uh, the ease of drawing different districts can make, uh, Sarah Callis, our intern, found a great tool on the 538 uh, website. You can go and she's going to, we're going to post the link to it. You can look at the state of Georgia and you can look at different ways the state could be divided up, reapportioned based on the compactness of the geography, based on racial uh, indication, uh, you know, impacts and that sort of, you should go there. It's really fascinating to look at how the maps could be drawn. Kareem, I said there were two things, developments, one older, map drawing by computer, one very recent for Georgians, and that's we no longer have preclearance by the Justice Department for anything to do with elections. I've got to think, Kareem, uh, that that is a, that gives a pass to a lot of people who want to draw maps that are not particularly fair. I think that's right. And I think one of the uh, sad legacies, I think, of the uh, Supreme Court will be the essential gutting of the operative portion of the Voting Rights Act that allows for what looks like a more robust public involvement in redistricting. Uh, before, under the system with Section 5, we had government review of maps that were adopted, whether at the congressional level or the state level. And part of what states and local governments knew, like the uh, Georgia legislature, was that whatever they did, there was going to be somebody looking over their shoulders mm -hmm. to make sure that people of color in particular were fairly uh, incorporated into the process, not just elected, but people, uh, uh, you know, average citizens uh, had a role to play. 
and that ultimately they came close to achieving what might be considered a fair assessment of political um, uh, power allocation. Uh, that's no longer in uh, the books. What we do have at the uh, thankful work uh, due to a lot of the C3 organizations like my own is a network of people out there who are working very hard now to make the next redistricting, which will, by the way, be with the most diverse dynamic population that the South has really ever seen, Mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that the public and communities are armed with the best technology and the training to be able to engage even uh, if they're in a hostile space uh, to make sure that their preferred way of organizing districts uh, is at least heard. And, you know, we hope that decision makers will take that seriously. If they don't, we will be prepared to take action even without Section 5. But it is a sad thing indeed. We will be running uh, redistricting schools in Georgia, for example, to work with community groups to prepare for it. But what we would all like to see, I think, is a system that at least assures that the public as a whole has a better shot at getting their voice heard in the system as opposed to the backroom deals that have, I think, characterized redistricting in the past. And the other thing, Andre, because Kareem already referred to it, is you still have the ability to go to a state court and argue that district lines have been drawn uh, unfairly, unconstitutionally. Uh, yeah, so I mean, preclearance is gone, but I think right. Kareem would say this, and I should probably disclose that I'm a member of his board. Um that Section 2 is still alive and well. And so if there's active discrimination, so, I mean, usually people are thinking about sort of like actual preventing people from being able to vote. But like the idea that you still can't bring voting rights claims against people for doing funky stuff is that's still out there. OK, well, can I? Sure. You know, uh, Section 5, the preclearance. So keep in mind, the North Carolina map was pre-cleared by the Obama administration, uh, Obama Justice Department, the original one. The 10-3 uh, was approved by the Obama Justice Department. So, but Section 5, you know, what the Supreme Court said is, look, if you can bring it up to date with some data that is today's data, then that's fine. But if you can't, we're not going to do it because they were using the 1968 uh, presidential election. You can't. You know, I mean, and so what we tried to do with the Voting Rights Act was on there. We tried to say, okay, let's go back the last three presidential elections and then roll it off every 12 years to get that data. And, of course, they didn't want to do that. Real quick, though, Kareem, I did not realize that the 10-3 district in North Carolina was approved by the the Obama by Eric Holder's Justice Department. I'll add that I disagreed with that decision when it was taken. I oh, think okay. the later decisions. Uh, and I will tell you, I made the arguments to justice uh, at the time that it was a bad decision. Yeah. And I think the later rejection on uh, grounds of racial gerrymandering proves me right. And yeah. I suspect if you ask Eric Holder that today, he might actually take a different view. Yeah, considering Point, he's running his new organization to it, fight that kind of gerrymandering. Jim, you wanted to jump in? Well, th- this may s- s- sound silly, but, silly, but Bill, you were talking about the, the, the changes in technology and the and the ability to map, and and also that that there are all these programs now where you can draw your own districts districting. Kareem, I'm just wondering when does crowdsourcing kind of get involved in in redistricting? That's really interesting. In in in, in that in that if you've got a population that can draw their own maps individually. When does when does that how how can is it possible to bring that kind of force to bear uh, into the state capital into the process? 
I think that's part of the answer is getting um, outside of government to get people in a space where they can put that kind of thought in ways that government will listen to. So I don't think it'll be as simple as, you know, putting it out there and letting it organically get created. But I do think creating spaces so that people can do that um, and then translate that in the space where you're actually engaging in the map drawing, no matter who the decision maker is, makes sense. I have to make two quick points, though. One, it is fair that there is no more Section 5 and that we can rely on Section 2. But I just want to note, we're in a year right now that ends in the number nine. We are still litigating cases that started in 2010 oh, and 2011. Uh, so Section 2 is a tool, but it is a tool that does not stop an election from running and does not stop all of the different policies that get created in a legislature that can ultimately, as is the case in North Carolina, rule to have engaged unconstitutionally in map drawing and then elected members who engage in policies. Those don't get undone. And then the last point to make is um, with respect to the the uh, newness of data, um, I actually co-authored a brief to the Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder where we showed them that actually looking at current data that was before Congress, the distinctions that were made in which states were covered in Section 5 and which states were not were clearly um, matching the level in which there was racially polarized voting, the active use of suppressive measures, and frankly, views about race in general. All of that matches up to uh, indicators that would indicate that you would need to have continued oversight of certain parts of the country and not. The court just chose to ignore it. All right. We are rapidly running out to our last minute. I just have one question. Andrew, let me throw it to you. Elena Parent, Democrat mm-hmm. in the Georgia legislature, Senator, has on any number, has last session proposed what other states have done, an independent commission to draw uh, lines, district lines. Um, it failed in the legislature last year. It'll be back again this year. But is there any reason to think that the people in power will give up the ability to perpetuate their, the power of the lines they draw? Not without a fight. But, um, you know, I think that this is a, that's a fight worth having in part because we have seen it in other places. So California has shifted yep. to nonpartisan districting. And so just from a normative standpoint, like I understand the self-interest that legislators have in doing this. But sooner or later, like, you know, it, it probably well, makes more sense to go to nonpartisan because that's probably the closest we're going to get yeah. to crowdsourcing. Well, the nonpartisan, you know, Democrats control California and they have 53 congressional seats after the nonpartisan redistricting commission. Republicans lost about 12 congressional districts. So. You yeah, can't, there are people you can't who think take, independent districts are not. Uh, I mean, independent uh, commissions uh, uh, don't work either, Jim no, Galloway. No, they don't. But I mean, you also have to think about sort of like what the nature of sort of California's electorate is. And so, if that's a majority Democratic electorate, then perhaps the seats should reflect. All right, that. I hate to stop this. We let's go another hour or two because we really have that much to talk about. We are so completely out of time. Kareem Creighton, what a pleasure. Will you? Let's do this again when you start working on the project in Georgia. Andre Gillespie, Lynn West. Moreland, what a pleasure to see you uh, for the first time in quite a while. Thanks for being here. My partner, Jim Galloway, thank you for being part of this conversation. Great to be here. We'll talk about it more on Political Rewind in the weeks and months ahead. I'm Bill Nygut. See you soon. <laughs>